Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. Uh, I'm your host for today, Jordan Osserman, and I'm very pleased to have on the program Shana De La Torre. Uh, Shana De La Torre is a social worker in practice in Minneapolis, Minnesota. She also has a past life in academia, where she studied several medieval, uh, where she studied medieval French literature, feminist, gender, and sexuality studies, and psychoanalysis, and which gave her the opportunity to read for money and teach at such places as Cornell, the University of Chicago. And uh, I'm going to totally butcher this, but the École Normale Supérieure des Lettres et Sciences Humaines in Lyon, France. Oh, that was good. <laughs> she has published articles <laughs> under her former name, Shana Carlson, in such journals as Differences, a Journal of Feminist Cultural Studies, TSQ, Transgender Studies Quarterly, and the International Journal of Psychoanalysis. And her book, which we're going to be speaking about today, Sex for Structuralists, the Non-Oedipal Logics of Femininity and Psychosis, published by Palgrave, came out in August 2018. So thanks for joining us, Shana. Thank you, Jordan. I really appreciate it. It's nice to get to talk to you. Yeah. So as we were saying right before we started the program, um, we've uh, spoken Mm -hmm. before about your work, and I've been a big fan of um, an earlier – I I first came across your work from an earlier piece that you published about um, the potential relationship between Lacanian psychoanalysis and queer theory. Um, So I'm wondering if – before we talk about the book – um, itself. Uh, could we talk a little bit about your kind of academic trajectory and social work trajectory and, and how one led to the other and what the relationship is between the two? Yeah, happily. That sounds good. It's funny, I guess, like the article I think you're talking about, the transgender subjectivity one. Yeah, that's the one. Um, when I got to like writing that, the opportunity to write that, which came about through like my A exam when I was a grad student at Cornell, that was kind of the moment where I like was able to figure out how to function as an academic, (laughs) which, because I finally understood like, oh, the point is to sort of focus in on something that you care about. And I just hadn't been like putting those things together and sort of been going through the motions up until then. 
And then I encountered what seemed to me to be this enormous problem, which was what I interpreted as a lot of um, transphobia in psychoanalytic writings about transgender people and transgender phenomena. And that just didn't make sense to me based on my, you know, admittedly limited understanding of Lacanian psychoanalysis. So, so you, you had been interested in, in studying Lacanian psychoanalysis, but, but came across a tendency for transphobia in, in the work. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And I had been kind of like galvanized by it from the beginning, which was probably the best sign that like, this was going to be a lifelong problem for me, <laughs> Lacanian psychoanalysis. But this was a particularly like galvanizing moment. And so that's kind of where the essay came from, was just wanting to explore that for myself, like what's going on here, um, and trying to understand best I could, you know, what what is Lacan trying to say about sexual difference? And that, um, you know, that comes in and out for me, like whether or not I have, have a grasp on that at all. But I feel that's the same. Sort of where that, <laughs> yeah. That's where that essay comes from. But then it's funny to think that, like, you know, since then I have I have also kind of happily moved out of academia and into the world of social work. And so it's hard to explain exactly how that happened. But um, whatever it was about that problem persists for me with Lacanian psychoanalysis, but I want to deal with it in a clinical world rather than in an academic world. I don't know. Mm. Is it is it the case then that um, did did you start with a kind of academic theoretical study of psychoanalysis that then morphed into a more clinical interest? Yes, I think so. That might be why I ended up making the change because I kind of just kept hitting my head up against the same wall, which was like, um, I want to keep looking into this in a clinical way, and that's mm. kind of. How I'm, how I'm trying to proceed now. Mm-hmm. But I haven't necessarily, I also, so my work with transgender has kind of fallen by the wayside too. Like this was a real question I had and a real passion that I had, but it's not necessarily an ongoing piece of my, um, piece of what I'm working on. Mm. I wonder actually if we could just visit for a moment the one of the kind of key arguments of, of the article right right before mm-hmm. we go into the book because it does kind of reappear uh, towards the end of the book which is I mean something I'm quite fascinated by is you kind of ask this question of um, if Lacan has this theory of sexual difference in which um, masculinity and femininity are kind of divorced from biology but um, have instead something to do with well, there's been different explanations given, but an organization of enjoyment or a relation to the symbolic. Um, if if I get the argument right, you're kind of suggesting that that these that this uh, description of what masculinity and femininity is about um, is not necessarily does not necessarily have to correspond to what we think of as gender. Is is that right? Yes, yes, but that's my understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what kind of what were the implications of that? I mean, why what what mm-hmm. kind of got you to to reach that position? Well, I was I was really interested in just taking as seriously as possible the idea that sexual di- difference could be a position in language that or could, that language itself would sex the subject, and that um, femininity 
would be a kind of relation not to um, not to not to the the world of gender and all of that, but actually just a relation to how like how you came into being as a subject in relation to the limit or the lack thereof, which is I think where the book kind of picks up. Um, trying to sort of proceed with that question. Um, it seems to me that what Lacan forefronts in the formulas is that gender won't tell us whether or not one has masculine unconscious sexuation or feminine unconscious sexuation. Gender will have intersected with it in some way because gender becomes a sort of imaginary manifestation of whatever it is that's happening at the unconscious level, but it doesn't necessarily, it's certainly not deterministic of what's happening at that, at that level. And it won't, it won't have, um, it's not deterministic, I guess is where I want to stop myself. (laughs) I mean, I, I think one of the really interesting things about that piece, which I just am kind of continually grappling with as well is it's, Mm -hmm. Um, so it kind of opens up, I suppose, a possibility for, um, thinking about trans and, and queer sexualities, um, uh, in, and, uh, the possibility for psychoanalysis to have more productive relationship with that, I suppose. But at the same time, what, what you don't do, which is quite interesting is you don't dismiss the notion of sexual difference altogether, or, you know, what a lot of queer theorists might be tempted to do, which is say, well, um, this this idea of masculinity and femininity upholds some kind of binary which we have to oppose. Um, you kind of hold on to some idea of a two uh, or a split of some kind. Yeah, I think the split is important. Yeah, and sexual difference is, you know, one iteration of that split, if not the iteration of the split that psychoanalysis, you know, can't let go of. And that we as subjects can't let go of. So let's let's talk about the book. Um, what could could you just begin by saying how how did it kind of come about? Um, what what was the motivation for it? It was kind of just as this side thing that I had for Levi Strauss. I think at the end of the day, um, I was lucky enough to be approached by an editor at Palgrave. Um, at a point when I had already decided that I wanted to leave academia, asking, you know, did I have something I wanted to write a book about, which is a pretty awesome opportunity to be presented with. So I tried to answer that question from the point of like, well, what would I want to do if I just wanted to do whatever I wanted to do? And turned out Levi Strauss was the answer to that question. So Levi Strauss just confuses the heck out of me, and that like has not really changed throughout the course of having written this book. But I wanted to know like there's something about structuralism that I feel that has been lost and is so useful, and useful particularly for the very kinds of questions that are driving us politically today. Which I don't even know how to begin to get into, but that I feel that we can benefit from going back to Levi-Strauss and looking at how he accounted for things like structure, the symbolic language, and where, you know, just where, um, 
I don't know, I just wanted to kind of find the places where he was doing that in a way that could function today for not just sort of your classical edible subject, I guess. And I had this strong hunch that there that I would find some answers to that in Lily's jokes. So it came about because I was asked, do you have something you want to write? And I thought, well, I'm going to go back to this Levi Strauss character who's been driving me a little nuts. Hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think one of the things that's really beautiful about the book is that you can kind of tell throughout that although it's uh, it's very much an academic book and very theoretically rigorous, there is uh, alongside it a clear engagement with um, clinical concerns and some kind of... Um, uh, I suppose just way, way of some thinking about things that is clearly in relation to other people um, and and uh, clinical experiences with other people, um, oh, which, uh, which is unique, I think, in, in, in this kind of literature. Thanks. That's nice to hear. Yeah, that's true. It feels like, it felt like not necessarily a very personal project, but yeah, very much so something that I was experiencing writing and I was writing it while I was in my Masters of Social Work training. So um, that's, that's probably operative there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's do a, a, a big question, which is a quite difficult one. Uh, and I apologize for it. But okay. um, what, what, what really is structuralism? I mean, how, oh, how yeah. do you <laughs> or, or what what's the kind of version of structuralism that you're trying to articulate in the book? Okay, well, um, I guess hmm. my first answer is kind of the negative answer, right? Um, it's structuralism, I think, is not just the sort of edible account of the origins of um, culture. So I guess, you know, I really liked finding this Piaget quote that structuralism is a method, not a doctrine. So structuralism, I guess, is fundamentally a way of approaching questions that um, can be put into any kind of scenario. Um, and what I was worried about in sort of ways in which structuralism has been construed, particularly in, I guess, like queer theory and these kinds of things, was that there had been this kind of sense that structuralism, as I understood it, had become synonymous with what I was calling edible logics mm. or the logics of the incest prohibition, which is the logic of masculinity in the Lacanian account of sexual difference. Right. Um, and I was, I was wanting to find out, cannot structuralism also be um, a way, a method, methodology, right? A method, not a doc doctrine that has something to do with um, not just edible ways of being in the world, but non-edible ways of being in the world. Is there not some way in which structuralism can um, shows us that in fact that's just um, not the complete picture of the Oedipal sort of subjectivity? Mm -hmm. So, it, am I right in thinking um, the version of structuralism then that you're um, that you're critiquing or you're saying that's not the whole story is the kind mm -hmm. of structuralism that people like Judith Butler might be criticizing? Yeah, yeah, it really was. It was kind of a chance comment made by someone in my A exam defense, um, where she's, you know, that kind of started this thing for me in the back of my head years ago, when she pointed out, you know, Judith Butler 
and has a reading of the symbolic that seems to be Levi Straussian. <laughs> so um, the, the sedimentary laws, right? That that's a kind of Levi Straussian way of thinking about the symbolic. Um, and so, but was that all that, that was there for Levi Strauss? That was my question. And I don't think so. This is- yeah, because this is a criticism, I mean, just thinking about Butler's work and um, mm-hmm. in that debate that she has uh, in that book with uh, Zizek and Laclau, where um, it's kind of been mm-hmm. remarked a lot that the way she seems to think of the symbolic is that <clears throat> to enter into the symbolic is to, uh, that the symbolic is a place that upholds all kinds of uh, sexual gender norms and other kinds of norms uh, mm-hmm. that, 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 that kind of forces us to obey to some degree. Um, mm-hmm. And that it, it sounds like you're offering a different account of what, what the entering to the symbolic uh, involves. Yeah, and a different account like of what the symbolic then would be and what it's for. I really, really, really um, liked um, my advisor, Tracy McNulty's definition of the symbolic and wrestling with the angel experiments in symbolic life, her most recent book. Um, which I, she defines it there as a creative process of devising new fictions. And he's looking to, you know, how she reads Lacan's rereading of Freud to arrive at that definition of the symbolic. Um, you know, just most recently I've been, my friends have been pointing out to me that analyst Willie Apollon's definition of the symbolic is um, simpler still. It is what is said. Um, so mm. it's the, the field of the spoken. So, yeah, it's sort of there's a kind of obviousness to the idea that the symbolic would be somehow synonymous with just norms, right? It just seems like well, this is what, what we live in, and we live in norms, we live in ideals, values, and prohibitions. That's another really Apollon sort of formulation that this is kind of um, what we coexist amidst. Um, but it also seems important to preserve something about the symbolic as a site from which we can create new things. And Mm. that's what I'm kind of trying to trace out in Levi Strauss too. those moments where he also brings us in touch with a symbolic where we can create a new. I mean, I suppose this might be a tricky question, but it just makes me think, is there some reason that these two definitions of the symbolic manage to coexist? Because they, they're quite different. One sounds it's it's all about prohibitions and the other is quite creative. So what? how do they both get called the symbolic? Yeah, good question. <laughs> how do they both get called the symbolic? Hmm. Hmm. I don't know if I have an answer to that. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah it, it might be something where it kind of yeah. sounds like a research question to pursue for the future. But, yeah, um, it does. I mean, I think McNulty kind of deals with that a bit in the introduction to her book by talking about the becoming normative of the symbolic. Hmm. So a way in which um, the fictions with which we live that kind of permit sort of social coexistence get tired, you know, they get tired and they're like, you know, this business isn't working for us anymore. Um, that's when you kind of know you're living in an outdated norm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to jump a little bit, you mentioned Willie Apollon, and he appears <clears throat> a few times um, in the book. And um, 
I've kind of encountered uh, his name and a few other people associated with this school in Quebec uh, increasingly. It seems like there's something interesting going on over there, uh, some kind of new form of Lacanianism that's emerging. So could you tell us a little bit about um, your experience uh, there and and what what are some of the ideas that are being circulated in Quebec? Mm -hmm. Yes. um, Well, it's true. Um, Willie Apollon and Daniel Bergeron and Lucy Cantin are all um, it's the founders of this group called Two Freak, um, and it's situated in Quebec in Canada. And my own involvement with them has been their yearly training in Lacanian psychoanalysis, which is something that takes place every June for about a week, where they um, offer sort of pedagogic instruction in the morning and then kind of more clinical cases in the afternoon, all within the framework of Lacanian psychoanalysis, which they themselves have innovated through their work with people with psychosis. They have a clinic that's called the 388 that was started, I think, in 1982, um, where they are treating people with psychosis psychoanalytically. And in order to do that, they, they had to innovate um, they used what they were learning from what I from what I heard from how they speak about this that they were listening to people with psychosis in order to learn how to reinvent psychoanalysis itself for the treatment of people with psychosis. So it's it is very interesting and very exciting. I I'm not you know super knowledgeable about the three eight eight itself, which is such an important site for them for the production of all of their work. But I have been able to go for about, I guess, six years to their week-long training in for people like me, you know, academics and clinicians. Uh, yeah. And I mean, is there something, you know, because there's, um, like we were just saying in the beginning, there is a, um, a unfortunate tradition in some kind of Lacanian circles of not being very friendly to... Um, you know, concerns of uh, LGBT people and other kind of politically progressive issues. Is, is there something in their reading of Lacan that um, has kind of, uh, that you found useful uh, in, in being able to continue a commitment to um, issues around gender and sexuality? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I mean, I guess what I have found useful has been their kind of just their orientation as such. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't go, I wouldn't necessarily say that the way that they are, the ethical practice that they are doing is something that has actually, it hasn't necessarily intersected with my interests in gender or queer sexuality, but it has sort of let me know. I mean, the way they, I think, would talk about it is that cultural constructions as such are roadblocks to the traversal of castration. So, um, or, um, you know, they have spoken about the symptom is the best thing in the human um, and something like homosexuality is a symptom. So, you know, in as much as they are on the side of the human and on the side of the unconscious, then they, you know, they allow you to pursue your desire, whatever it may be, but it hasn't necessarily been a place where, for example, I have pursued interests in transgender 
gender, sexuality, this kind of thing. Does that kind of, yeah, does that make sense? Or Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it's... Um, it just sounds like it's also uh, a sort of innovative reading of Lacan that um, that, uh, that that gets put forward that you also kind of engage with a bit in the book. If if I understand it correctly, there's a kind of renewed attention to the unconscious. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty radical new reading, I think, of um, Khan, and that comes from their work with people with psychosis. And Perhaps one of the most important things is this kind of emphasis on the idea that the unconscious is real and it is out of language. So I think that that's really interesting and that's not necessarily always the same thing that we see in Lacan. Um, yeah, that's something actually, I mean, it, it, we can jump forward a bit to chapter four in the book because there you, um, that, that's the chapter called Two Traumas, Not One, The Feminine Myth. And there you discuss a bit the idea of the real unconscious. Um, so could you say a bit about what, uh, what, what is the real unconscious and how, how is it different from what we normally conceive of as the unconscious? Yeah, well, um, the real unconscious, as I'm trying to work with it, is just, it's not my idea, of course. It's, you know, it's Willie Apollon's. It's the way they talk about the unconscious as the censored or the out of language. Um, and so the subject of the unconscious, as Lucy Kantan, I think I quote her, one of her articles in that chapter, says that the subject of the unconscious is a real, and so the only way of accessing it is through what she calls these writings of the real. Um, I think it's different than, as I understand it, ways in which the unconscious gets figured as this, um, for example, um, just what is repressed, what has been repressed. So what is repressed is unconscious in a certain kind of sense, but it, if it has been repressed, of course, it has been represented. So it is in language in some, it is in language, and it can be brought forth into language again. The real unconscious has some other kind of trajectory that I'm still trying to understand or learn about, but um, that Lucy Canton refers to, you know, you can only access that through the writings of the real. It's it remains out of language. And I think that that's one of the things that the analysts of G3 talk about too, that, um, for example, I, I remember Apollon mentioning, you know, any, any even a very good analysis done to its term is not going to exhaust the censored. Um, and you, it wouldn't want to, right? It's First of all, it's impossible. And second of all, you wouldn't want to because the censored is kind of the site of the of the human that is going to, that results in acts, ethical acts. So then <clears throat> is it to grapple with the real unconscious is in some way, if I understand correctly, is it to kind of um, uh, have some account of its functioning without exactly being able to say kind of what's in it? Is, it, is that is that kind of the idea? Um, an account of its functioning, perhaps. Or, or perhaps I mean, I suppose what... Yeah, I'm just wondering what 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 do you do with the with the real unconscious or what's oh, its kind of clinical uh -huh. implications? Uh huh. I think that the analysts of G Freak would say um, you take responsibility for it, and so and its effects in your acts and in your words. So through um, the real unconscious is sort of acting constantly. It's it's sort of it's just always there acting and. 
what at least my understanding of the work of an analysis would, t- would entail would be to um, very slowly kind of construct some sort of knowledge about about you know about what cannot be said about what is out of language and from that site learn to take responsibility for what one says and what one does so that uh, yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah, yeah. you know yeah this is really from my like attempt at understanding what they have t- spoken about and taught about Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's really fascinating, but um, yeah, let's, let's, let's talk a bit about actually what, what the other kind of big subject of that chapter and the following chapter, which is this idea of uh, two traumas that you explore. And um, I really love how you do it in part through the film, uh, the Babadook. Um, I don't think I've yet, I've yet to see uh, a sort of uh, critical account of the Babadook um, before, before encountering yours. So that, that was a lot of fun. Um, but uh, uh, given that um, our listeners, um, most of them would not have read the book, could could you just say, um, kind of very uh, schematically, what 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 do you mean by two traumas? Um, what what what's 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 your interest in talking about that? Yeah, well, my sense of the two traumas and is <laughs> it's it's kind of the idea of the after the fact, right? The after coup. Um, and it is kind of linked to the real unconscious too, because you know you're a person who'd be going through their day, and something happens, and all of a sudden, you know, in the language of clinical social work uh, today, it's like you're activated, <laughs> right? Like something has come up, um, and not just any such experience could really constitute, you know, the second trauma, but just to try to give kind of a everyday example, there's this feeling that surges up. Um, as I understand it with Freud, what he learned through um, his work with hysterics, right? And I guess the case of Emma is the one that I mentioned, as I recall. Um, there's a trauma that is that you experience that you only experience after the fact, or I'm not putting this very well. Um, there's something that you encounter that when you encounter it, it calls, it constructs something else that has already been encountered, but that was never sort of encountered as such as traumatic. And it's in kind of sort of working through the logic of the second experience that there's some knowledge that can be learned about the first experience. And another way of kind of talking about the real unconscious is that it's 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 a trauma. So I have a feeling that I'm going to want to <laughs> try to re-say all of this. Um, but yeah, I was really struggling with what this deferred action of trauma is in Floyd. And I was struggling to kind of figure out what on earth it had to do. Like, why did Levi Strauss refer to it kind of just very briefly when he's introduction, introducing his canonical formula for myth? And I don't believe that I answered that question, but um, I was interested in it in part because of all of the sort of discourse today about um, the widespread experience of like post-traumatic stress, right? Yeah. For example, which is really kind of just um, huge in um, mental health in the United States is like PTSD, PTSD, PTSD. It's everywhere, and so I was trying right, to understand yeah. like what 
what is going on with trauma um, in psychoanalysis. In the Babadook, it's a whole different thing, I think. Like, ultimately, like, I kind of am trying to make the argument that when she loses her husband in that car accident, that's like a kind of second trauma for her, that there's a reason that she, that sort of propels her into not just sort of your typical experience of mourning, but, and loss, but into something more extreme. And I was kind of arguing that it's because something in that experience activated like the first trauma for her. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off um so so then so in the film right so we have this uh, mother uh who loses her husband in the car and then um if i remember the, the the then there's a kind of haunting in which uh she's sort of failed to mourn this death but her child is kind of aware that that there's something going wrong here and then uh, the Babadook emerges as a kind of representative of this this thing that was failed that that one that she failed to mourn. Is is that kind of <clears throat> so the uh, so so how would you understand the first trauma in this um, in this case, or is it kind of uh, is the first trauma sort of um, the same for for everyone, or how how does that kind of work? Yeah, I guess the first trauma, I think. I like the way you put that. Is it the same for everyone? In a sense, um, it's the same for everyone in as much as it's kind of like, as, as much as we could call it kind of the constitutive trauma that sort of introduces, you know, the subject into subjectivity. Um, and then, mm. of course, though, irreducibly singular for everyone because that is kind of, I mean, there's a way in which you could say an analysis is kind of the, the, the seeking of the language for the formula of the first trauma um, and a way in which to sort of make of the first trauma something out of which one then can act ethically. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I know I like there's a kind of, um, I suppose, ongoing debate about the psychoanalytic conception of trauma. And one of the, uh, I guess, issues in it is um, <clears throat> if, if, if we posit this kind of constitutive trauma um, that is universal in some way, even if it's particular or singular to each individual, uh, what, what, h- how does that relate to, uh, you know, lived traumatic, you know, awful experiences that people have and, and does it in some way um, devalue that or, or, or how, how do we give a proper place to, 
um, occurrences of trauma in everyday life uh, in relation to this idea that everyone is traumatized in, in some constitutive way? Well, my own view would be that it doesn't devalue um, lived trauma, like the kind of experience that people can speak about, like, for example, the traumas that perhaps are repressed, right, or the traumas that one does have some sort of language for, um, or one knows that one experienced, or one at least senses that one experienced, as averse to this kind of first trauma that we're kind of talking about here that could only ever be constructed because it is out of language. Um, Yeah, I think I've kind of wondered about that too and struggled with that too. You know, what, what about just your kind of the experiences we all know about that people um, have gone through that are traumatic? Like what is their link to um, something like a first trauma? And I think where I'm kind of have been going in part because of how I'm understanding what um, the analysts at Two Freaks seem to talk about would be, um, you know, even within the language of mental health today, there's a sense that like an experience is not traumatic because of, um, you know, what happened. It's traumatic because of what was experienced, right? So there's already this kind of displacement from the site of kind of a particular event to the site of the experience. Um, so there's already that, that that's, I think, useful in certain more common ways of talking about trauma. Um, but I think what psychoanalysis would add to that is that an experience is traumatic also not just because of the experience of it, but because of... Um, hmm, how to put this? It's not because of the actions of some other that one experiences trauma. It's what one experiences in one's body um, that one experiences that there is trauma. So in a sense, it's like you traumatize yourself. <laughs> but that's not to say that there's something wrong with that or that's bad or like it's your fault. It's that no, that like how you experience that trauma inside yourself is the site of your subjectivity. It is sort of jouissance. Um, and therefore it's interesting and productive to look at. I don't know. What do you think? (laughs) Hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, um, I mean, I think it's, it's kind of that, that's, uh, kind of, uh, a crucial psychoanalytic point from the beginning, right? Is that it's the, the, um, two people can, can experience the same event very differently, um, um, and and is it and is it then the idea with the two traumas is it that the 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 kind of um, traumatic experience that the person has in the world somehow harkens back to their relationship to that first trauma? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could say that. Uh huh. Uh huh. That if you experience it as traumatic in the world, it's because it harkens back to that other experience. Um, and and remind me and uh, and just for the listeners, how how do you kind of work that out through the Baba Duke in terms of how how does she resolve uh, the, the 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 experience of that second trauma? I think she resolves it when she looks at the monster and asks, "What do you want?" <laughs> That's kind of where I think like the whole thing starts to just radically um, uh, accelerate to the end. Um, she you know has been clearly in a lot of denial (laughs) would be one way of putting it. Um, Believing that this monster is coming from some 
where outside of herself and um, seeing it mm. um, show up in various kinds of ways, these hallucinations or these just these bad feelings when she goes to the police, for example, to try to say she's being stalked. Um, but there's that moment when um, she just looks at the monster, the Babadook, and asks it, what do you want? And I think that's kind of the point at which she starts to resolve her relationship to it. She doesn't really fully resolve it. I think it's interesting, right, that she kind of keeps it in the basement. Um, but I don't know. I don't know what to do that. <laughs> it's so, I mean, it's so fascinating um, to think also, though, I think what maybe the film does so well um, is that uh, it's not necessarily possible to talk about this creature as um uh, purely uh, a hallucination or something that's in her mind because, of course, it's affecting her son the entire time. Uh, and so I think, yeah, one of the things that's so interesting is how is it that um, this, this a psychic problem, which seems like it should just be her own, is actually kind of spilling out into, into the world surrounding her. Yes, that's a lovely way to put it and kind of makes, you know, makes the connection, right, to the way in which um, our unconsciouses affect people around us <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah 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 it kind of um brings to mind the sort of laplancian formulation of you know the transmission of the enigmatic signifier from from one person to another yeah so let's uh let's work backwards a little bit um because uh, there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on in the other uh earlier chapters of the book as well um so uh in Chapter two, this is on, um, it's called Primal Scene, Ground Zero, Levi strauss Lacan and the Wolfman Beyond the Seduction. Uh, so, uh, could you tell us what were you trying to accomplish with the Wolfman in this chapter? What, why turn to him? Yeah, I was drawn to the Wolfman um, because I, you know, on the one hand, that's sort of where um, Freud is trying to wrestle with the question, like, are primal scenes real? Did they really happen? Or are they um, constructions in analysis? And kind of seems to, as I recall, kind of just vacillate on that question as he's trying to work through the Wolfman case. Um, And I guess I was interested in the Wolfman case too because there was kind of this this hint that, like, you know, there was this sort of unacknowledged or sort of unanalyzed or um, experience of sexual abuse that's perhaps is also at play in his life um, that sort of doesn't necessarily, it certainly doesn't get talked about explicitly um, in Freud's case with the work that he did with him. So what's going on with that? And then lastly, I guess I wanted to think about the Wolfman because I think when I was first sort of thinking about Levi Strauss and, and the Wolfman, it was it was at a moment when I was trying to figure out, like, is there something queer about structuralism? Or, right, like, the Wolfman is a case study where we get to kind of access the fact that any kind of um, analysis is going to engage with what you could call queer erotics, right? Because the um, unconscious desire just as Apollon points out just doesn't answer to norms values ideals and prohibitions so it's it's queer in the sense that it's it's um 
or that was sort of a problem I had. Why would I say that it was queer or not queer? Um, but there's something going on with erotics in the Wolfman that um, is important. And um, I don't really know why I kind of thought that Levi Strauss could help me answer that question. Um, and I'm not sure that he did, but I've kind of forgotten what your question was here, Jordan. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I just, I wanted to hear a bit about, yeah, what, what, what thing, what prompts the engagement with the Wolfman? Um, I mean, and as you, as you were saying, there's this whole, um, I mean, one of the things that's so, you know, difficult about reading that case study today is the kind of uh, obsessive efforts that Freud makes, right, to try and prove um, the reality of the events of the primal scene. And it's it's somewhat maddening when you read it, um, at least in my experience of it, at least. Um, so I wonder, where, where do you kind of sit on that? What, what do you make of, of Freud's attempt to, to prove the reality of the primal scene? I guess, yeah, that's fun. I'm not sure. I guess it's, I think Freud is just always kind of sort of a little bit maddening in what he's trying to do. <laughs> he's just a rigorous fellow. And um, he takes things beautifully seriously. So I guess that would be sort of what I would say in a slightly flippant fashion that um, here again, he's at work in his Freud kind of way to sort of be like, I and working through this and we sort of experience his working through of it in his, in his writing and his not knowing. Mm-hmm. And, and would you say, does structuralism relieve us of the need to kind of posit the event as, as kind of um, a, a factual moment in history? Is there another way of looking at it um, through, through what you get from Levi Strauss or, or not necessarily? Ah, that's a nice way to put it. Yeah, I like that idea that structuralism itself could be part of what relieves us of the need to kind of locate this in factual reality. That's kind of, you know, what Levi Strauss himself says at some point in that essay on uh, the song of childbirth, that it's kind of just really of no interest to him um, whether or not these things can be located in reality. Um, What's important is sort of is the construction or, and the experience. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Actually, could you tell us a bit? I mean, it's a, um, that's a really beautiful Levi Strauss paper, the effectiveness of symbols that you, um, that you talk about in the book. Could you explain a bit what, what that paper is about and what that song, what, what goes on in that song? So that paper is about Levi Strauss's reading of this, what's called the song, song of Mugla. And, um, which is the song of this woman who's experiencing a difficult childbirth. And in the song, what happens is that um, a shaman is called to sort of help this woman sort of um, get through the pain that she is experiencing with childbirth by way of the shaman kind of going in and doing battle with what's inside the woman's body that has not been able to be expressed. So the song, um, as Levi-Strauss quotes it, seems to be just beautiful. Um, but Levi-Strauss's argument is that this is a that this woman is treated because she is a part of a culture that believes in the mythology that the song itself is kind of calling upon to give an account of what she is experiencing in her body, and she's able to be cured 
of the pains she is experiencing because of the effectiveness of symbols, because she believes in the symbols that the shaman in the song is um, calling forth to sort of name what is happening to her. And that because she believes she's able to kind of, you know, be cured. And so he uses that, as I understand it, as a way to sort of argue for the existence of a collective unconscious. Um, I'm not totally sure how we get from A to B there, but um, the fact that, I guess, these symbols work is, to his mind, because um, because they are somehow touching upon something that exists in a collective unconscious. They manage to kind of activate those powers. That's mm. That's how I interpret that essay by Louis Strauss, which is, I think, yes, ultimately just a really beautiful piece of writing. Yeah, I mean, what do, what kind of implications do you think it has um, for, for us today? I mean, because I guess <clears throat> a, a slightly rash kind of secularist answer would be like, well, we don't live in these times anymore where we believe in these kinds of creatures. So what, what, what use does this have to me now? I guess... I kind of correlate it to, again, the, the Babadook, right? Like, um, you might say that we we sort of do live in a time where we have these kinds of answers in as much as we still live in a time of kind of um, collectively held myths about, for example, like the efficacy of psychotropic medications. <laughs> you know, like that's a kind of collectively held myth. Um, but like, these things work. And so if you believe in that language, then um, that might help that might help in the cure um, or, you know, a, a sort of a collectively held idea we might have for Amelia, the character from the Babadook is that it makes sense that she would be traumatized by the death of her husband. And, you know, there's, there's things like grief work that she can do to kind of like process that experience and find words for it that are kind of familiar words that, other people might share with her and thereby she could kind of re-enter the collective through the ways in which we talk about loss and grieving. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, this just, this brings up the really kind of uh, one of the crucial questions, which I remember, I believe you pose in the book as well, which is that the question of is, is the psychoanalyst then just a contemporary shaman uh, or, or is it, or is, is a psychoanalyst doing, doing something different? Um, um, yeah, and that's Levi Strauss's point. Yeah, he believes that the analyst is a contemporary um, shaman or shaman. And I would say that um, at least the way I'm understanding the work of the analyst as I've been trying to learn about it through um, the teachings at Chief Rake would be that the analyst cannot be a shaman because the analyst can't supply the words for what can't he said. So the analyst doesn't know um, what is out of language for the analyst and, and that's from whence his desire to know, right? So he, the analyst is not someone who can give the analyst and words like the shaman in this, in this song, right? Supposedly supplies the language to express what has been heretofore inexpressible. So yeah. So, so the so the shaman um, <clears throat> has a place in in um, in solving this kind of problem, but but there might be a different function that an, that an analyst would have. Is that 
And it would be kind of a different kind of function for a different kind of problem in a way. It's kind of like if the problem can be treated with words that exist in, in language and in culture, good, you know, <laughs> like that's, a, that's, a, that's an also a problem. Right. It's like, then yeah, we can manage that problem. Um, and those problems deserve our attention too. Yeah, it makes me think like, well, you know, if you just got in like a small argument with your colleague or something, then then maybe you should just draw on the resources of culture to to deal with it. But but if you if you really want to question the, you know, the depths of your being and and how you know what what transference has to do in your early childhood experiences with that argument, then <laughs> then you have to go for a deeper treatment. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. Yeah, you have to go somewhere else. And it takes you to a different place then and you find yourself on a different scene altogether. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes it sound like that there there might be times when you really don't necessarily uh, <laughs> want to be taken to a different place. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I really liked, um, I talked about it briefly in the book, that documentary, uh, A Rendezvous with Chez Lacan, where um, they, he, who is it? It's uh, the brother of uh, Miller, Jacqueline Miller, who's talking about something he remembers Lacan saying about like who should do an analysis or um, and it's like maybe you don't, you know, you don't necessarily, you cannot unopen the box as they say. So let's uh, let's talk a bit about, about the final chapter uh, before we finish. Uh, we we kind of discussed it a bit at the beginning by talking about um, your your work on the formulas of sexuation. Um, but there's a really interesting kind of extended discussion you have on the idea of feminine jouissance. Could you say a bit about about that topic? Um, I mean, uh, I'm sure for some of the listeners um, and uh, you know uh, w- won't necessarily be familiar with um, this concept of Lacan's and its significance. Yeah, there I think I'm. I'm first. I'm sort of talking about it in in terms of how Lacan presents it in Seminar Twenty. And this kind of jouissance that is um, other, feminine, the other jouissance. And I guess the other, in part, it's a co- comparison with um, like phallic jouissance, which is like a jouissance that you could say is sort of, um, takes place in language and can be talked about. And I think he calls it stupid somewhere. Um, the, the other jouissance, I mean, for me, the words that just jump to mind right away, again, are really Apollon's. It's the jouissance that is too much. And it's kind of jouissance, I guess, that is, um, you could describe it, therefore, as traumatizing, or it's it's trauma, but um, or like Lacan says, trauma or exquisite pleasure. So um, the feminine jouissance that comes up in Seminar 20, I guess, is sort of part of Lacan's attempt to sort of talk about what is, what's happening in sexual difference. You know, why, why is it that um, there are these different experiences of jouissance? What is it that's going on in the figure he gives is the statue of St. Teresa. She's experiencing something, but she, she can't say anything about it. It's feminine jouissance, but you just have to look at her and you can see that that's what's going on. And I mean, this, I always struggle with this question, but is, is your take on it? I mean, that a subject kind of um, is positioned on, on one side or the other, either experiences phallic jouissance or has the potential to experience feminine jouissance, but it's kind of, you get, you get fixed in one position or the other and that's kind of the, the trajectory or is there some, 
do you see it as more ambiguous? I think it's more ambiguous. Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, I might have felt uh, differently about it, for example, when I wrote that article a long time ago where I was trying to talk about the logic of sexual difference. I think now I would say um, that, you know, everyone experiences feminine jouissance. Mm. Yeah, because I... I that I am not surprised to hear you say that in a way because it seems like what the book, um, if I'm reading this right, is suggesting is that there's kind of some clinical implications about uh, what you talk a little bit about a clinic that isn't just about um, uh, stopping or draining jouissance or symbolizing it, that, that, that there needs to be some space for working with jouissance. Is that right? Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. It wouldn't necessarily, yeah, but we don't want to to treat it or get rid of it or cure it. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. But perhaps to find some signifiers for it. And I guess what one other kind of uh, complicated topic in this whole sort of knot of, of interesting kind of relations that you're, that you're exploring throughout the book is, um, is psychosis, of course. So uh, I think you ask yourself, why, why am I talking about femininity and psychosis in the same vein or why am I putting them into relation? So could, could you explain a bit about what, what, what is related about the, those two phenomena? Yeah, I think it, it, it is kind of, it remains an open question for me, but my, my sense is that it has something to do with this relation to a limit. So um, they, they seem they're not the same thing, but they're linked in as much as um, they are both kinds of ways of encountering a lack of a limit in language, femininity and psychosis. So, you know, for, for Lacan, um, the psychotic is this, the subject who forecloses the name of the father. Um, the analysts at G-Freak talk about sort of the name of the father as something that is essential for the child. Um and but only for the child hmm. and precisely to kind of like kind of protect the child from um what is out of language to give the child some sort of support for the fact that there is an out of language while the child is still a child and if the child doesn't kind of have that experience then the child is exposed too soon to to the fact that there is an out of language that is traumatizing, mm. but we all get exposed to that is is how I understand the analysts at Chiefreak um, talk about it. We all get exposed to that fact as adolescents, and we all come to have to deal with that. Uh, so it's kind of the name of the father, and the way you're talking about it is like a, a sort of temp- a temporary solution. Yeah, yeah, uh huh. That's what I'm understanding that that the folks at Chiefreak are teaching, and I, I think that. I like that. That makes sense to me. So, so then, what? Um, so, if if that kind of uh, is operative, the name of the father, at least temporarily, um, what uh, what what are the implications for femininity, or what, what? I guess what's the difference in a way between femininity and psychosis? You've said a little bit about how they're related, but what what makes them distinct? Well, one major difference would be that, um, like, just even kind of terminologically, but usefully, right? That psychosis is a structure, so it's a kind of a a subjective structure that that one then I guess is or can take, whereas femininity is an experience that um, I think you know is universal that we all have. So um, that there's that first of all, 
um, but that they're linked again, I think, in this experience of the, the lack of a limit. Does that make sense? Um, <clears throat> I mean, if I, if I kind of read it correctly, it, it seems in part what's going on with the entire book is talking about a kind of uh, a treatment that is attuned to these logic of femininity. Is, is that right? Yeah, that's, I think, that's what I'm sort of trying to imagine. Yeah, that, uh, oh, I guess, ultimately, such a treatment. And um, in as much as my own, you know, like, um, I'm a social worker and who's a former academic. So, like, the first part of the book is sort of like, does structuralism show us something about how to be attuned to femininity? Or does it give us instances of this femininity? And then, yes, what would be such a treatment that was was also attuned to it? Yeah. Do you feel like you're able to um, apply kind of some of the insights that you've gained in writing this book to your to your work as a social worker? I think that in as much as it's it's so important to me, like inevitably, I kind of am listening to people with with these things in in mind. Um, I wouldn't necessarily go so far as to say that I'm applying it because I'm not. You know, I'm not certainly not an analyst, and I'm not working therefore analytically with people. I'm I'm a therapist, and and that's different. And so, but for me, it's true. Like all of these things are kind of present within me and in my mind, um, and it impacts how I listen to people. If not, then how I, and to a certain extent, how I would intervene with them, but um, still within my role as a therapist, which is quite different. Yeah. Well, um, we're just about out of time. So I think that's a, it's a good place to start to wrap up. I think uh, the last question that uh, we always ask on the program is, uh, what, what are you working on next? Oh, <laughs> that's great. Um, I have this like fantasy of writing a book about like um, Marguerite Brett. She was this, it's so funny, right? How you go back to where you came from, but like this French medieval mystic who um, um, I really enjoyed reading when I was a graduate student. So maybe I'll go back to her one day. Um, these days, I'm really just kind of working on learning how to function as a therapist and things like gardening. <laughs> so that's kind of like, it's hard to do in January, of course, in Minnesota, but... Great. Well, fantastic. It's been so nice to speak to you, Shana, and thanks so much for uh, offering us your time. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm really happy to get to talk with you and um, to appreciate your questions. They're very, you know, very helpful for me. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.